Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Week six. Um, Yeah, um, part of the privilege, I guess, of being able to explore this series of Mark with you guys is that um, when myself and Chris sat down and started looking at it, um, I got to choose which passage to um, speak on. (laughs) And so... um, I'm going to make the audacious claim that I think that this passage that we're about to read in Mark 8 um, could be one of the most pivotal um, in the whole of the biblical narrative. So, like, I know that's like a really big claim, um, but listen to what I have to say and then come and debate after. In Mark, I started this series about six, six weeks ago, and I started with the verse Mark 1, verse 1, because... Let's start at the beginning. And um, let me just put this, I'll put that here. And Mark 1 verse 1 says, This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I just wanted to draw out the fact that when Mark writes Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he actually isn't just using the long name of Jesus. And that's interchangeable. For example, Queen Elizabeth has like a thousand names, right? Um, and she has official titles, but we call her Queen Elizabeth. Um, Jesus, we have the benefit of hindsight. So Jesus is often synonymous to us with the Son of God or with the word, the name Messiah. But in actual fact, back in the days of the disciples, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and the Son of God weren't necessarily entities that would be grouped together. And so if we think about what Mark is trying to do in saying this, he's trying to say Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's intentionally telling the readers that um, the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. Now that's really important to remember or recognize for later on in this passage, which is why I emphasize that now. So I want to, first of all, speak about, and and also one thing to say about that is that even though we as the readers know that that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because Mark, like, lets the cat out of the bag in verse 1, the disciples didn't know it. The people at the time discovering who this Jesus of Nazareth was, walking the face of the earth, walking the face, like, certainly in in, near Galilee, who is he? Context is an interesting thing. And sometimes we look back on history and it looks different because of what we know now. But if we can, and I'm going to talk about The Chosen for a second. One thing I've loved about watching The Chosen, and I do recommend it and come to the screening, is that it really looks at um, the life of Jesus from the point of of view of those who were following him, from the point of view of those who were chosen by him. And so if we can just put our brains or in, and imagine what the disciples would have thought during this time, it will really help us to understand this passage a little bit more. Before I read Mark 8, which we're going to explore, I did want to just talk about the Messiah. 
the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Because the disciples grew up with stories about the Messiah from when they were born. Stories about the Messiah had been coming for a thousand years. Ever since King David, there was prophecies that the Messiah would come. So think about a thousand years from now, when that was. This, this story of a Messiah that would come, a king that would come to save his people is a thousand years old. And for 400 of those years, the Jewish people were ruled by um, kingdoms other than their own. They were waiting for their king to come. And so in the mind of the disciples, when you meet this man, Jesus of Nazareth, you're automatically going to start thinking, is this, is he the Messiah? Because that's a big claim. Because they have been waiting a very, very, very long time for this moment. And the center of the kind of, um, the faith surrounds, their faith centered around the coming of this Messiah. It wasn't, it wasn't just this legendary figure that may come. They knew the king was coming, but they didn't know when. And they didn't know who. And so basically, the reason why they knew this is because of prophecies that have happened since the time of King David. But the thing about prophecies is that they're sometimes hard to interpret. So there were many different schools of thought about who this Messiah would be. And to give you an idea in the present day of what that would be like, um, I want you to um, think about another prophecy that we know in the book of Revelation. Now, this prophecy is about Jesus returning. So we know he's come, but in Revelation, he's returning. He's coming back again. And think about the many different interpretations that we and the church have about the, coming, about the return of Jesus Christ. There are like whole entire denominations based around the, the return of Jesus. And think about that if you were waiting for the Messiah... There are many schools of thought about who this person is and when they're coming. And so that will give you a bit of an idea of the context and, and sometimes confusion that people would be having when they're trying to find out who this Messiah is. But in the many varying beliefs from um, that time period in the ancient Jewish, Jewish beliefs, there were some things that they knew to be true about the Messiah. They knew he would be descended from King David and from King Solomon. They believe he would, he would unify the tribes of Israel that had been separated in exile. They believed that this king, this savior king, because the Messiah translated means anointed one or savior. They knew he would um, bring back Jews that were scattered in exile into Israel. They believed he would usher in a messianic age of peace. They believed he would bring peace to the earth. They believed he would be the future ruler of Israel and have a kingdom on this earth. Now that's all, if you've studied the Bible at all, that is all very, we believe that about the Messiah. However, there was no, that, yeah, he, was, he would be visibly known as God's emissary and he would have a lot of power he would have power to rule this earth. But there was nothing in much of the schools of thought about the Messiah that would say that he would be the Son of God. In fact, 
that came completely out of the blue to the Jewish, pe Jewish people. And, um, and I think in Mark chapters 1 to 8 that we've explored in this series, which is why it's really good to do it in a series so you can get an idea, is we looked at some of the miracles that Jesus performed, and they were like proper power miracles. Mark was not mincing his word when he spoke about the power that Jesus had. In fact, if anything, when Mark told the miracles he told, he was ticking the boxes of what everybody was looking for, for the Messiah. Chris spoke about um, Jesus calming the storm in um, Mark chapter 4, and the disciples were like, who is this? So suddenly they're thinking, wait, this, this, he's not just a prophet. He's, there is something about him. And then in Mark chapter, C, chapter 6, we see Jesus actually walks on water. Now, this isn't just like a superhero thing to put in because it's really cool. Mark, and, you know, why did Jesus walk on water and why did Mark put it in his gospel? Well, in Job chapter 9, verse 8, it says, God alone stretches out the, seven, out the heavens and treads on the waves of the seas. Suddenly, we are getting this picture that Jesus, he's the son of God. And the disciples, can you imagine being the disciples and just being like, wait, what is going on? It would have been completely, completely out of the ordinary for that day. The man the disciples were walking was with the Son of God. And then not only that, could he be, and think about the disciples, like all like revelations happening as they're walking with Jesus. They're like, could he actually be the Messiah? Could this long-awaited Messiah, who is saving the Jewish people from oppressive rule, who will reestablish a king from the line of David, could he be the Son of God? Could God have come himself? to save us? This is the revelation that was going through the disciples' mind during this time. I mean, can you imagine being there and just starting to realize, put the, the pieces of this massive puzzle together? You know, if you're them, it's like, could this be too much to hope for? For a thousand years, we've been waiting for the Messiah. Is he the Messiah? And Jesus hasn't actually confirmed he is the Messiah at all. Not at all. But then in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, which is why I'm like, this is a significant passage, team. He says, Jesus says, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, the disciples, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? So he's like getting an inkling that they're kind of thinking, ah, are you the Messiah? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Kind of strange, but we'll cover that later. Although the readers of Mark knew who, that Jesus was the Messiah, the disciples have finally got confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And they know he's the son of God because of the miracles he performed. And they've just pieced the two together. He's confirmed what they've all suspected, that they, the, the person they've been waiting for a thousand years is here. And this was the first time he said that. Can you imagine how they must have felt? And then he tells them not to tell anyone. Because Jesus knew what people believed about who the Messiah would be. 
Because before the disciples went and told everyone that Jesus was the Messiah, he had something else he needed to say first. Now Mark is making some clear points. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And for all those who weren't expecting it, the long-awaited anointed one, Savior King, is in fact the Son of God. These are really important points that are being emphasized in this passage. But then, another point's about to be made, and this point is like the world's biggest plot twist that no one was expecting for a thousand, a th- ever since the prophecies of the Messiah began. Jesus then goes on to say, straight after revealing to his disciples that he is the Messiah, the anointed chosen one, he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, verse 31, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus, the Son of God, this is end of verse 31. He must rise again. So Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, must suffer and must die. And it says in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Mark is making this really clear because Jesus, in the first eight chapters of Mark, spoke in parables and through signs and miracles. He told them they were the, he was the Son of God by walking on water. But this time he speaks very clearly. There's no question about what he's saying. And then in verse 32, continuing, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Which is slightly audacious, but (laughs) verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's a kind of strange interaction. Seems a bit harsh of Jesus. We're allowed to put our hands up and admit that in the present day, it seems slightly strange. But it all comes down to what you believe about who and what the Messiah will be. Peter had finally discovered for sure, like in the verse before, that Jesus was the king, the savior king they had been waiting for for a thousand years. And so when Peter said, you are the Messiah to Jesus, what he was really saying was, I think you're the one who will reestablish Israel's supremacy amongst the nations and usher in a new era of peace and holiness. But that their savior king, their long-awaited Messiah, would suffer and die on a cross, that was not part of any plan that any of them had for who their Messiah would be. This, in fact, wasn't the person that they were waiting for. They'd heard this, I mean, think about this for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They'd heard this amazing news that Jesus was the Messiah. They had realized that God himself had come to earth to save them. And then this, it's like a massive curveball to the story that they'd learned for a thousand years. Peter said as much. That's why he pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. He was like, hang on a second. And Jesus' response to Peter was really, really strong because Jesus knew that making this point crystal clear, speaking plainly about this, 
would be fundamental to everything that was about to happen and everything that was to come. It's, it's basically a plot twist that no one would have predicted, and for many, it sounded a lot like heresy. Peter didn't realize, he was still in shock, that to deny that Jesus was the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, is to deny, and to deny that he would suffer and die, is to deny, deny the very foundation with which our faith is built on. Jesus' response was very strong because it had to be strong. Peter didn't know what he was saying, but after that interaction with Peter, Peter and all the disciples knew how important what Jesus' saying really was. To redefine the Messiah King, the Savior King, in the context of tremendous suffering and ultimately death and then resurrection was to go against everything they believed of the kind of person their king would be. An unbeatable warrior with a power given to him by God to usher in a kingdom of, key, a kingdom of peace. We are pretty harsh on the teachers of the law in hindsight. We read those books and we are like, what are they? As they shouted blasphemy at this claim that Jesus made. But the truth was, Jesus, the Messiah King, wasn't the man they'd been waiting for. And while Jesus is the King, and he, he is the King, and we sang it tonight, all hail King Jesus, he is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. There was something that needed to happen before he could do that. Before he claims victory as the conquering King, he must first fulfill his role as the suffering servant for the sake of sinners, for the sake of you and for me. It's not enough to know that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples. It's not enough to know that he was the Messiah. You have to know that he came to die. That's the missing piece of this puzzle. And even though prophecies were, were, were told in Isaiah and at other times, so many interpretations meant that they didn't know this. They didn't know that this was the plan. Do you kind of get why Jesus responded so strongly to Peter now? It's because he loved Peter. And a gospel without suffering is no gospel at all. Peter and his disciples had built their world around the definition of a Messiah as we outlined in the beginning. How on earth was this to be true? And Paul, Paul actually speaks about this, and he makes this very clear in Corinthians, the struggle of, for the Jewish people to accept Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The, cruci the crucified Christ is a stumbling block to Jews because it goes against everything they've ever believed about who the Messiah would be. And foolishness to Gentiles, because who would do that? <laughs> it explains why initially in the first eight chapters in Mark, Jesus warned people not to tell them who he was. If they had a miracle and they clicked, you know, this is the Messiah, he told them not to tell people. Not 
because, you know, he was waiting for a big reveal, but because he knew who people believed the Messiah would be. And he needed time to redefine their idea, generations of belief about who the Messiah would be. Instead of a warrior Messiah of the Roman and Jewish world, he would be the suffering servant who would come to die. Now, if we continue on with this passage, like I said, this is like a great passage. We go to verse 34. He's just said this. He's just had told them he's the Messiah, then had this interaction with Peter. And then in verse 34, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This was Jesus' first, very first call to discipleship. The disciples had previously been told by Jesus, follow me. But this was the moment that Jesus defined what following him would actually mean. The call was to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And it was just after he told them that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, must suffer and must die and be raised again. The whole conversation in this small um, passage in Mark, verses 27 to 35, this whole conversation is, is redefining not only who the Messiah, they thought the Messiah would be, but it's actually outlining to us as believers what discipleship is. And that's why, to bring you back to my first statement, it's such an important passage in Scripture. It's a life-changing conversation that the disciples were having, and I'm not sure they even grasped that at the time. And this is where it gets a little bit tougher for us. As humans, we love Peter. And the reason we love Peter is because we're quite like Peter. We can't comprehend a gospel that is made complete in suffering. It's really hard for us. Peter certainly couldn't, and, and we can't either. Like, we just can't quite get our heads around it. Victory is about glory, and it's about power. And death doesn't really have a part in that. Suffering, that's not glorious. It's very hard for us to understand what Jesus actually did for us. And it goes, like I said, against our very instincts, if Jesus hadn't first modeled to us what it means to take up our cross and follow him, we would have no idea. But he did. Taking up our cross means laying down our lives in the pursuit of following Jesus. And laying down our lives in the pursuit of following him. This is the way of the cross, the Calvary Road. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, this is the call to discipleship he's giving us. Because victory is won in the hardest of places. I used to think Christianity would make me exempt from suffering. Um, and I used to think if I was suffering, I was doing something wrong. Because 
I grew up in a gospel that was defined by and in, uh, our inheritance had been won for us. We are entitled to a good and happy life, a prosperous life. And that good and happy and prosperous life is the witness that would point people to Jesus. I didn't grow up in a, in a, in a world that explored discipleship. I grew up in a world that was like, if you look like this, then people will want to be like you, and then they'll know it's because of Jesus. But that's not what Jesus was saying. A happy, non-suffering life isn't what Jesus promises us when he says, take up your cross and follow me. And I say this not because I'm trying to put a downer on everything or because I'm wanting to say, no, life is just going to be hard, guys. It's, you know, it's because Jesus gave us the example. And suffering in the context of what Jesus did, although it looked like a failure, was in fact an unbelievable victory. So as Christians on earth, we still suffer. But in Hebrews 6 verse 18, Paul actually, uh, not Paul, I said Paul. I don't, not sure Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Um, it says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. Brackets. We who have denied ourselves, taken up our cross, and followed Jesus, we may be greatly encouraged because we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. As I... Let me just explore one thing. Yeah, I just want to mention one more thing. It's on the next page. When I... When I was talking about Jesus being king, and I want to include this in because I've jumped ahead and I want to come back. That's hence the boars. Jesus is king, and we know that he is king. And the disciples had not quite yet, but were getting their head around Jesus being king. The thing that's most profound about what Jesus then did for us was when he walked the road to the cross and the road to Calvary, which, again, we've sung about tonight, he wasn't walking to defeat. He was walking to victory. In fact, he was walking to his own coronation. When Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, walked the road to Calvary, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. A robe was placed upon his shoulders, a staff was placed in his hand. And the death of Jesus that looked like defeat, it looked like the saddest day in human history, was actually the day that the king of the universe was crowned in the most unexpected of ways. In such a powerful and such a permanent way that we still live under the victory gained in that coronation. We still live in that victory today. So when we sang, all hail King Jesus, all hail the Savior of the world, that's what we were saying. This king who was crowned and whose throne room was Calvary, this king who won the victory for us, is not the king anyone was expected because the, the plan that he had was so much better than ours could have been.
And one of the things Jesus says to Peter in that passage that we've just read is you're thinking about man's things, you know, man's way of thinking, and I'm, and you're not thinking about the way that God would view it. I think it's really important when we are trying to work out some of the, the whys of this world and the complexities of this world to remember that we don't see everything and we don't see the big picture and we don't always live in a world where we feel like there is victory. But we have to remember that maybe even ask God to help him see it through his eyes because when Jesus began to show Peter and the following chapters, he explores that a lot. In fact, a third of the book of Mark is focused on the suffering and death of Jesus. And that is for a very, very good reason. The marrying of the, the savior king and the suffering servant is the thing that ties the gospel together in its completeness. As I read this call to discipleship. I've been a, a follower of Jesus for many years now. I was working it out. It's actually over 20 years. Um, I was so unbelievably struck by the call to discipleship that Jesus gave after he'd shared what was about to happen. After he'd shared that he was the long-awaited Messiah and he'd shared that the Messiah must suffer and die and be resurrected. After he'd shared this, he then put out a call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, we'll save it. I was so struck by that call to discipleship again as I read it. And I thought, I, like I said, I've been a follower of Jesus for 20 years. And I just I had to sit down and ask the question, Jesus, am I really following you? Is this, is this what you meant when you said... <laughs> Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, I believe in you, and I do. And that won't change at all. <laughs> but am I really following you? With everything I am, have I really laid down my life, taken up my cross and followed you with everything of my heart? And is my heart fully committed to the way of the cross? And I was challenged and kind of excited at this thought again that even after following Jesus for 20, 20 years, you can take a step back and say, Jesus, is this what you meant when you said follow you? So at like, basically, like I said, I love this passage because there's so much profoundness in it from the revelation that the Messiah is in fact the Son of God to the fact that the Messiah, the Savior King, is not who anyone expected and would actually suffer and die. And in that death, he would be crowned as King, King of Kings. And then 
not only are we blown away with that news, we're also blown away with the fact that Jesus puts out in a very simple way what discipleship is really about. So I wanted to end this evening with um, just one invitation. Just one invitation, and I'm sure you can probably guess what that invitation is. What does it mean to take up our cross and follow him today? We live in an absolutely crazy world. It is so full of gray. The older I get, the grayer it seems. And in some ways, when I was younger, I had all these like answers to things that it says this and it's this and this. And, and as those have melted away and as I began to explore what it really means, um, I think, especially when I'm, I look at suffering and I look at injustice and I wanted to ask the question, how do we answer that call to discipleship today? What does that look like for us today? And I wanted to ask the question instead of answering it because I think that's something between, I think that's something that we can come before Jesus and ask of him. Jesus doesn't expect us to know everything. And certainly with the gray of this world, he's certainly not saying do this and do that. He just, again, today is asking us that same question he asked the disciples at the, at the very beginning, his first call to discipleship. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and just follow me. And so I think... That's the question to ask today, and that's the invitation with which our hearts can respond. So if you wanted to stand up and we can pray, Chris, maybe there's a, some guitar or something we can play. Or... And it really is really, really simple. For those of us who are exploring that invitation again, we just ask God to search our hearts, and we ask, and we... If we need to, we just recommit to saying, Jesus, I want to follow you with everything that I am, with all my heart. And then just to wait and see what Jesus might want to say to you. This is definitely an invitation and not a challenge or a rebuke. And I think, in, in all honesty, it's an invitation that we need to continue to explore every day. And I think I've sometimes forgotten that. I've sometimes forgotten what this discipleship journey really is and what it means to surrender my heart again to following Jesus with all that I am. And so today I just wanted to give us all the opportunity to do that again if we wanted to. And if you're in a position where you've never... You've never started that journey of following Jesus, then what better time? It's such a simple invitation. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. And I don't completely know what that looks like in 2021, but I really want to know. And I really want Jesus to walk with me as we explore it. So we just put out our hands get our hearts ready 
to hear from Jesus. And I'll just pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to come. Lord Jesus, we ask you to show us what it means to lay down our lives, take up our cross and follow you. Jesus, I'm sorry where I haven't followed you, where I believe like Peter that things should be done a different way because I haven't really understood your plan. Lord Jesus, where I've I'm sorry where I've questioned your goodness when things haven't gone to plan. And sometimes I've even positioned myself against you and I don't know what you're doing. Lord, help me keep my eyes fixed on you. Lord, help us keep our eyes fixed on you. And as we just surrender our hearts to you again tonight, Jesus, we ask you to teach us how to follow you today.